We're going to look at chapters 35 and 36 today. And so if you want to go ahead and turn there, chapter 35 of 2 Chronicles, we'll look at those two chapters. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll go ahead and jump into it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your love for us is perfect, it's everlasting, and Lord, it's ours freely in Jesus. And Father, we pray that you'd help us today to understand that. I pray, Lord, that, that all the things that we've been learning in Chronicles, Lord, would begin to fall into place. And that, Father, that we would learn the, the most important lesson, that you rule from on high. You're on the throne, and you've chosen to make us your temple. And I pray, Father, that we would respond to you, uh, to that truth. And Lord, I pray that you would really just move by your Holy Spirit in the, in the lives of each person who's hearing this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So it is interesting when we come to an end of the book. I have to say, part of me feels uh, sort of a little bit relieved because it's a long journey. Part of me feels excited about getting on to the next book. But what's really interesting to me about this is that as we've been seeing in two Chronicles, actually in one and two Chronicles, that what's happened is the author is actually uh, preaching sermons from Israel's history. That his audience are these people that were in captivity in Babylon, and they've served their 70 years in captivity. And so now that new generation is going back into Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem. And he's giving these sermons as a way to motivate them to be faithful in the rebuilding of Jerusalem, in the reestablishing of the worship of God. And what's interesting to me about this is that we, we, we end this series, we see the last four kings in these two chapters and we see them basically failing. We see them in a place where if it was the end right there with the last king, we'd think, wow, what's the deal? Uh, how is this possibly encouraging with all this human failure? But it doesn't actually end that way, as we'll see at the very end of the book, that actually ends with this great message of hope. And the whole point that, that God wants us to see in the gospel is that even though all humans fail, God still holds out. A promise of hope. And so I pray as we get through this, that'll come clear. So let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 35. And it says, Now Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. And they slaughtered the Passover lambs on the 14th day of the first month. And he set the priest in their duties and encouraged them for the service of the house of the Lord. Then he said to the Levites who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord, Put the holy ark in the, the house which Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, built. It shall no longer be a burden on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Now, really from, from this section, verse 1 of chapter 35, all the way down to verse uh, 18 and 19, which we'll look at in a second. This is really just the author wanting to show how Josiah brings forth this Passover. <clears throat> a lot of the details that are included in here are, are very similar to what we saw a few chapters ago with Hezekiah, another good king of Israel. But what's different about this with Josiah is, is that what we see in the book of two kings is that Hosiah, or, I'm sorry, Josiah was considered the greatest king of Judah. And yet the author of Chronicles doesn't quite put him up that high. The author of Chronicles, as we saw again a few weeks ago, kind of put Hezekiah at the top. 
And he kind of almost seems to be saying, here's Josiah, and Josiah's doing a great thing with Passover, but it maybe wasn't quite as great as what was going on with, uh, with Hezekiah. Now, what's interesting to me about that is the fact that one of the things that's happening historically here with Josiah is that he's establishing Passover, not only more in line with what God's word says, if you remember, Hezekiah kind of had to do it a little bit late, according to God's word, but still a little bit late, where Josiah is making sure that it's happening right at the time that God predicted. But also Josiah is having to reestablish a time of Passover when there's not so much national pride, where people weren't going to feel like it was a patriotic thing for him to do. Now, here's what's interesting. If you, go, if you drop down to verse 17, here's, here's what it says in kind of describing Josiah's uh, Passover. It says, And the children of Israel who were present kept the Passover at that time and the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. There had not been, or there had been no Passover kept in Israel like that since the days of Samuel the prophet. This is before any king. And none of the kings of Israel had kept a Passover as Josiah kept, with the priests and the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of, uh, of Jerusalem. And in the 18th year of the reign, this Passover was kept. And so we see Je that Josiah's Passover was, in a real sense, better than anybody else's Passover. Now, what the author then does is he skips forward 13 years. And when we get to verse 20, 13 years have already passed by. Look what happens. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, the king of Egypt, came up uh, to fight against Carchemish by the Euphrates. And Josiah went out against him. But this is Necho or Nico. He sent messengers to him saying, What have I to do with you, king of Judah? I have not come against you this day, but have come against the house with which I have war. For God commanded me to make haste. Refrain from meddling with God who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah would not turn his face from him, but disguised him so that he might fight with him. And he did not heed the words of Necho from the mouth of God, so that he, uh, so he came to fight in the valley of Megiddo. And the archers shot uh, King Josiah, and the king said to his servants, Take me away, for I am severely wounded. And his servants therefore took him out of the chariot and put him in the second chariot that he had, and they brought him to Jerusalem. And so he died and was buried in one of the tombs of his father, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourn for Josiah. Now what's interesting about this is this, you have this king of Egypt, but you, you could say a pagan king, so to speak, who, who's saying to Josiah, look, don't interfere with the battle that I'm getting in. And Josiah, though, feels compelled to fight against Necho, probably because uh, Josiah was, uh, in one sense, under the reign of the Assyrian kings. So what's going on here is this big political upheaval that we'll talk more about in a minute. But he feels compelled by, you might say, his own political perspectives to fight against the king of Egypt. But when the king of Egypt says, listen, that's not God's will for you, he cannot even fathom that that would be from God. But the author tells us it actually was from God. In other words, it's a situation where his political perspectives are actually keeping him from hearing from God. Now, yes, I'm phrasing it that way because of the time that we live in, because I, I really do feel like application here, 
that, that we are in a place as the church that we have to be so careful that we're not letting our political affiliations or our political perspectives on, on current events have more say-so in our lives, have more influence in our lives than what the gospel actually says. But that is a side note. So what happens next? Verse 25. Jeremiah also lamented for Josiah, and to this day all the singing men and the singing women speak of Josiah in their lamentations. They made it a custom in Israel, and indeed they are written in in the laments. Now that's not the book of Lamentations, just so you know. It's something that we don't have anymore. Verse 26 says, Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and his goodness, according to what was written in the law of God, and his deeds from first to last, indeed they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Israel. Judah. Now, here's what's interesting. <clears throat> what's interesting here is that um, I lost my train of thought. Sorry. What's interesting is something that I'm going to remember to say in just a minute. Now, what's, what's interesting is uh, is, is that, that he he dies from from what uh, he went through. But even in his death, even though he made this error, even in his death. That the, the Jerusalem is, is mourning for him. It even says specifically that Jeremiah the prophet is mourning for him. Now this is important too because uh, we're going to see a, a lot of things that Jeremiah the prophet said concerning these kings. And, and I want to read to you from Jeremiah chapter 22 from the New Living Translation about how Jeremiah spoke of King Josiah. He said, Josiah had plenty to eat and drink, but he did what was, or he was just and right in all his dealings. That is why God blessed him. He gave justice and help to the poor and the needy, and everything went well with him. Isn't that what it means to know me, says the Lord? Now, the reason I think this is interesting is because there was a limit to Josiah's authority. He was initiating a Passover at a time when it wouldn't have been as popular. And so when he dies, in a sense, uh, what happens is that those reformations die. Those, those things that he was doing, they fade away, as we'll see. But his influence continues. Why? Because he was a man who didn't want to just bring religious reform, but he really wanted to turn God's people back to God. That they would be those who, including in their worship of God, including in their knowledge of God, would be this, looking after the poor and the marginalized. Now, this is important because what we're seeing here is Josiah's authority was, was limited, but his influence was continual. Because when we live the way God wants us to live, hey, maybe we won't have the cultural credibility that we wish we would have, but it doesn't mean we won't have influence because God is pleased when we live according to the way that is pleasing to him. Now, all this is to, to bring up a really important main point, which is Josiah was a good leader, but even the best leader can't transform other people's hearts. Good leaders don't, don't change human hearts. And this is important for us to think about because you may be in a situation right now where you're so frustrated with the leadership of our country or the leadership of another country in the world, maybe my home country. Or maybe you're frustrated with the way things are being handled right now on, on whatever political sp uh, perspective you look forward to. But you need to know something. What's needed in the people, human, the human race, is a transformation of heart. It's not just new political convictions or, or new uh, uh, perspectives or, or even just a sense of needing to correct historical wrongs. More than that, what's needed to change us is a transformed heart. And no good leader can do that. No good human leader can do that. It's something that God himself has to do. So now look at verse 36 or chapter 36, verse 1. It says, Then the people of the land took 
Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and they made him king in his father's place in Jerusalem. Jehoahaz was 23 years old when he became king, and he reigned a whopping three months in Jerusalem. Now the king of Egypt disposed him at Jerusalem and imposed on the land a tribute of 100 talents of silver and one and a talent of gold, hefty amount of money. And the king of Egypt made Jehoahaz's brother Eliakim uh, king over Ju uh, Judah and Jerusalem and changed his name to Jehoiakim. And Necho carried, uh, took Jehoahaz, uh, his brother, and carried him off to Egypt. So this is going to be, we're going to see that the author in verse 36, especially in the first 10 verses, he takes these kings that he's mentioned, actually he takes all four kings, and he lumps them together. Specifically, we see this with these first three kings, and we know this because he doesn't give them the epitaphs that he's done with other kings in the past. He puts them all in one category. Now, what's interesting about this is that, again, as I said earlier, this is a time of radical political upheaval in the area of the world that this is taking place in, in the Middle East. You have the Assyrian Empire who have been kind of ruling, and they're the ones that took Israel into captivity, and they were the ones that kind of were, were in a sense, uh, overseeing or having a certain power over even Judah and Jerusalem at this time. That kingdom of, of Assyria, that's, that power, superpower, is losing influence. It's shrinking in, super, in, its, in its, uh, its strength. You also have Egypt thinking, okay, if Assyria is getting weaker, maybe I can come in and take over. But the reason they want to do this is because everyone sees Babylon as getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And so there's all these radical uh, political tensions going on in the known world at this time, in the Middle East at this time. And so what you have is when Josiah dies, who was a good king, the, 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 the people in Judah, they decide, okay, we want to make Jehoahaz our king. What's interesting is he wasn't the next in line. And so this is their choice. They want to think, no, 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 we know what's going to happen. If we get just the leader that we want in power, then, yes, then things will go well. But it doesn't work that way. See, the preference of the people here doesn't overthrow God's plan. And part of God's plan was to chasten his people because they had been so corrupt. And so then we pick it up in verse 5 of what happens. We get to the next king. We get to Jehoiakim, who was originally called uh, Eliakim, but his name was changed by the uh, Egyptian king. And it says in verse 5, Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king. And he reigned... 11 years in Jerusalem, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against him and bound him in bronze fetters to carry him off to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar also carried off some of the articles from the house of the Lord to Babylon and put them in his temple at Babylon. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, the abominations which he did and what was found against him, indeed, uh, they are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. And Je Je Jehoiakim, uh, Chin, uh, his son, reigned in his place. Now, here's what's interesting about Jehoiakim. Now, the author of Chronicles doesn't mention the specifics of the abominations. But again, Jeremiah the prophet does. In the same section where Jeremiah is praising Josiah, he's cursing his son, Jehoiakim. Listen to this, Jeremiah chapter, 27, or chapter 22. But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king, our son of Josiah, king of Judah. 
They will not mourn for him. He will have the burial of a donkey dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Whew, pretty harsh words. Now, if you under, if, to, to know this context, if you were to read two kings, what you'd see is Jehoiakim in a time when, of course, Babylon is, 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 is put this big tribute. First, Egypt has put a big uh, tribute. They had to pay a taxation, you might say. Then Babylon is coming and bringing a big taxation as well. In this time when people are so, the country is going broke, things are horrible, guess what Jehoiakim's doing? He's exploiting the poor, putting them in the forced labor so that he can have a better palace. Makes you a bit frustrated, doesn't it? We hear about this kind of oppression and this kind of, this kind of exploitation. And we think to ourselves, how could God be good to let all the suffering like this happen? But here's what we're seeing. God sends a prophet and says, this ain't going to continue. He judges this king. He, he says, look, I see that you're bent on this oppression, on shedding innocent blood, and I'm not having it. This is important for us because, listen, um, the exploitation of the, of the poor, of the marginalized, never escapes God's attention. God sees injustice. The things that are making people angry and riot from all different kinds of sides. God sees the injustices there. And he doesn't ignore them. He will deal with them. Now we bring to the, to the next king, the, the Jehoiachin if I'm saying his name right, the son of Jehoiakim, and see what happens next. Verse 9. Jehoiachin was 8 years old. That's probably a, a bad manuscript. He's probably 18 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 3 months and 10 days. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. At the turn of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar summoned him and took him to Babylon with the costly articles from the house of the Lord and made Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's brother, literally probably his uncle, king over Judah and Jerusalem. So again, Jehoiachin has a very short reign as his grandfather did. But here's what's interesting. What you see happening here is what we've seen throughout Chronicles. Sometimes God breaks the cycle of when there's an evil king, then becomes a, new, a good king. In fact, if you're reading Kings, you see not just the, the kings of Judah being talked about, but the kings of Israel, the other section of, of the nation being talked about. And those kings went from bad to worse often. And here we see the same thing happen in Judah, the cycle of political corruption continuing to happen. And again, we look at this and we go, man, this is horrible. Why does God let this happen? He doesn't. He eventually brings judgment. You see, the cycle of political corruption does not, cannot thwart God's judgment. Now, this is important for us to think about right now because I'll be honest, one of the things that really grieves me about this time is I, it, I, it looks like we are going to lose democracy. It looks like the, the thing that we felt secure in, maybe, the, maybe it was even kind of the invisible assumption of us in the West, that democracy will keep us safe, will make things fair. That seems to be falling apart. It seems to be pulled into question. There's so much division and there's so much conflict in our Western worlds right now. We think, what is going on? And we see cycles of political corruption from all sides. And we think, God, what's going to happen? Well, here's where we have to rest. What we see happening with Judah is, what is, is something that we've seen happen with, with nation after nation after nation, people group after people group after people group. And we need to understand this. This political upheaval, it cannot overthrow God's sovereignty. 
God's still on the throne. God's still in charge. God's still doing something good. And I really believe this is what the author of Chronicles wants the first readers to understand. Yes, you've seen history after, you know, you've seen uh, uh, upheaval after upheaval after upheaval. And you're trying to go back and rebuild your homeland. And you're wondering, is this going to work? And it's as if he's wanting to say, don't forget God is still sovereign. No matter how bad things have been, God has shown himself to be sovereign. Listen to this. Again, Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 22. He says, as surely as I live, says the Lord, I will abandon you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Even if you were the signet ring on my right hand, I would pull you off. I would hand you over to those who seek to kill you, those you so desperately fear, to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and the mighty Babylonian army. In other words, God says, listen, you're so wanting to please man. You so fear man. Fine, I'll give you into their hands. This is not where we're meant to be, church. As God's people, we are not to be those who fear people. We love people. We don't fear people. We don't worry about their opinions. We exalt God's opinion above any human opinion. And God, in God's opinion, all people have been made in His image. In God's opinion, all people have value. All people are those for whom Christ died. In God's opinion, this is what we proclaim. This is what we ought to live by the power of His Spirit. And no matter how bad things get, God sovereignly can and will work that through the lives of His church. Well, it gets worse, unfortunately. Look at verse 11 of chapter 36. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned uh, 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. And the author of Chronicles wants to quantify the evil that Zedekiah does, I believe, as a sober warning to all of us. He did evil and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who he had made him swear an oath by God. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah swear an oath, but he rebelled against it. Uh, but what, here's what he does. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Do you see this description? This is important for us to see. That this idea of, of evil, as far as the, the, the scripture is concerned, is us not humbling ourselves. It's us not turning back to God when God gives us warning. Look at verse 14 to 15. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the nations and defiled the house of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their father sent warnings to them uh, by his messengers. Notice what it says. Rising up early and sending them because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. Now this is interesting because it, this is describing God. The author of Chronicles is describing God's actions. And it's saying that God sends his messengers rising up early, as if God himself is getting up early. It's the idea that God's saying, okay, I need to get up a bit early today to make sure these people hear the truth of who I am and the covenant I've made with them. And why does he do it? Because he has compassion. He's motivated by compassion. Now again, this is really important to understand that, that in, in a place where 
God's people themselves are in a, in a place of stubborn rebellion. They're being led by someone who's in a place of stubborn rebellion. God is reaching out to them. Zedekiah and Judah were ignoring God's many warnings. And, and it's amazing how God gives these things in such a powerful and compassionate way. And I want you to think about how God shows his compassion. Listen to this again. This is Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 26. When he's prophesying against the house of Judah, he says, then, then the Lord sent me to prophesy against this house and this city, all the words which you've heard. Now, therefore, mend your ways and your deeds and obey the voice of the Lord, your God. And the Lord will relent of this disaster that he has pronounced against you. Even then, God says, there's a chance for you if you'll turn back. And Jeremiah says, but as for me, behold, I am in your hands. Do with me as seems good and right to you. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Because Jeremiah's words and actions speak of the compassion of God to call his people back to himself. Because what Jeremiah is basically saying is this. Listen, God's saying you need to repent. And if you don't believe me, you can kill me. I'm willing to die to underscore the reality of God's faithfulness to you, his willingness to call you back to himself. Now, if, if you're uh, one of the people that is just kind of still new to this, you've maybe just recently, even maybe even today, tuned into this, uh, this live stream, to this church service, to watch this message. And so Christianity might be new to you. And maybe one of the things that's difficult for you to believe is that this kind of exclusivity, that God would say that you can only be saved by putting your faith in me. Specifically, that God would say you can only be saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That there would be that sort of exclusiveness. It seems too, too exclusive. It seems too critical of other faiths, other world views. But I want you to think about this. Because what we see in the whole record of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation is God sending messengers to stubborn people. To, to Israel, the people He chose, they were stubborn toward Him and His prophets. Uh, all the way through to when Jesus Himself comes, when God takes on flesh and brings the message of God to His people, brings the good news of who He is and what He's going to do to His people. And what happened? The people rejected Jesus. We don't want to miss this because it's really important for us to recognize that when Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was beaten, when Jesus was crucified, when Jesus was rejected by his people, that was God's people and the humanity, human race basically saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. They are choosing to reject Jesus. The Bible is very clear. They chose to crucify Christ. His blood is on their, hand, on, on their hands. And His blood's on our hands. But the Bible also says that, that Jesus did this by the predetermined counsel of God. That this was God's plan. That God would come and in great compassion say, Listen, I'm here. You want to know what I'm like? I'm here. You want to know who the Messiah is? I'm here. You want to know what my, the plan is to restore all the, the, the world to a just place? I'm here, he says. And even when we go, we don't want you, and we reject him, what does he do? He purposely dies for our sins. Now, what's interesting is that, in a sense, Jeremiah is foreshadowing this. 
that even though Zedekiah and, uh, and Judah and all the company around them are, are ignoring God's warnings, in doing so, they're pointing forth at what would happen to Jesus. Now, here's the consequence. When people, God's people, or people in general, refuse what God says. It says in verse 16, But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets, until the wrath of the, of the Lord rose, arose against his people, until there was no remedy. If we don't heed what God, the compassion that God offers us, if we don't receive the mercy God offers us, there's no other remedy. Therefore, it says, God brought against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword, and in the house of the sanctuary uh, had no compassion on young man or virgin, on aged or, or the weak. God gave all unto his hand, and all the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders. All these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. Do you see all so many times? The author of Chronicles wants the readers to remember Judah and Jerusalem experienced complete ruin because they rejected the compassion of God. It's interesting, it says in verse 20 and 21 that, and those who escaped the sword, he carried off, that would be, uh, <coughs> that would be Nebuchadnezzar in the army, he carried away to Babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the words of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbath. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Now, a couple of things I want you to recognize to kind of put this in your head. If you've ever heard the story, the Bible stories, the Sunday school stories of Daniel and the lion's den, you know, Daniel would have been taken to captivity into Babylon at this time. This is where it fits in the timeline. But also, I want you to think about if the story ended here, if Chronicles ended right there at verse 21, if it ended right there, God would still be good. God would still be just. He would be right in judging his people if it ended right there. But listen again, the words of Jeremiah, it doesn't end right there. Listen to this. For thus says the Lord, when the 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And many of you uh, who are, uh, have something in your house, a picture, a plaque, I have a little uh, kind of a, a, I don't know, it's a little statue thing that has this verse, Jeremiah 20 and 11, on my bookshelf in my office. Famous verse. We love this. And we tend to think of this verse by itself. Yes, yes, it's great. God has good plans for me. But I want you to think about the context. What's the good plans God has for the, the, the people of Judah? It's to put them into captivity for 70 years, to humble them. Could it be, guys, listen, that God's good plan for us, I'm, I'm talking now to you guys who are Christians, could it be that God's good plan for us as His people is that we go through a very difficult time so that the gospel of grace gets exalted? 
Could it be that, like, as he's doing with Judah, that, that he's going to let them go through this horrible 70 years that they might come back out of it, rebuild Jerusalem by his strength and not their own? That he would be glorified and not them. That the truth, this great love that this covenant God has would be seen by the nations. So look what happens, verse 22. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, this is the, 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 the king who, who comes after Nebuchadnezzar. This is again a, a pagan king, not one who would have initially or originally wanted to worship the God of Israel. It says that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kings of the earth, the Lord God of heaven, that is Yahweh, God of heaven, has given me. He has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, who is among you of his people. May the Lord God be with him and let him go up. Think about this. When Judah is at her lowest point. When God's people are at a place of complete stubborn rebellion, what happens? God still fulfills his promise for anybody who's willing to believe it. God still shows his faithfulness. Because listen, this is the thing that we have to get through our heads. This is the thing that we have to understand through all the scripture, not just Chronicles. That even our stubborn human rebellion cannot overthrow God's faithfulness. Oh, God in his faithfulness will put us into captivity for 70 years if that's what it takes to break us. But he's faithful. He's faithful to his promise. All that he's doing, he's doing to bring us back to himself. This is the gospel. This is the good news about our God. Our God who in Jesus took on flesh. Our God who showed himself to be real and available and good, and merciful, and just, and compassionate through Jesus. Our God has done this through His death and resurrection. Listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29. He says, Then you will call upon me, and come and pray to me, and I will hear you, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all the places I have, where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I set you in exile. What a great promise is the, a promise that God's people. And he did. The generation who's reading that knows this to be true. They're coming back. Or maybe they're small. Maybe they're weak. Maybe they don't have a king who, who's on the throne, a human king that's on the throne. Maybe the priesthood has to be com completely rebuilt from scratch. But God is fulfilling his promises. Now I want to close by, by bringing this forward to the fulfillment that we see in Jesus. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul says this. Listen. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Christ has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, notice, from the hope of the gospel. 
Now, you might be in a place where you are losing faith in the relationships that you have. They seem to be crumbling. You might be losing faith in democracy. You might be losing faith in church leadership. You might be losing faith in all the things that, uh, that you had hoped for before. And that's okay. In fact, that might even be good. Because what God wants us to continue to have our faith in, the exclusive place of our faith, is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What He's done for us. You see, human failure, the failure of those people that have been over us, the failure of all those around us, our own human failure, our own stubborn rebellion against God, all of that should convince us that our hope can only be in Jesus. You see, the, the, the theme we've been given for Chronicles has been the throne of the temple. It's not so much about who the human king is who sits on the throne, as long as we know that we have the God-man, Jesus, who sits on our throne. He rules the universe. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. And the temple, not only is He the temple, so that when we're in Him, we are in the presence of God. We have this perfect, complete position. But also because of Him, we are being built into the temple of God, the place where God dwells eternally. See, listen, you need to understand something. When Jesus died, He didn't just die to kind of what make the wipe the record clean so you can start over and then hopefully you'll do your best from now on. No. He takes you out of a position of rebellion and puts you in a right position with Jesus. Look what it says. Listen to what it says again in Colossians. It says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is your standing before God. If you put your faith in Jesus, if your faith remains in Jesus, that's your standing before God place of righteousness, in the same place that Jesus has always enjoyed or God the Son has always enjoyed, we've been put in that same place so that we can learn not to be rebellious against God, but to say, Lord, you're our only hope. If you're listening to this and you're not yet a believer in Jesus, what's keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? What alternative hope are you looking for? There's no greater God and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's no greater hope than what's been given to us in Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You, Lord, that You love us, that You so loved this world that You sent Jesus to die, that who would ever believe in Him would not perish, but have ever lasting life. You didn't send Jesus to condemn us, Lord, though we deserve to be condemned, condemned just as Israel and Judah of old deserved to be judged eternally. We deserve to be judged eternally, but Lord, you sent Jesus that we not, might not be condemned, but be saved through Jesus. We put our faith in you. May our hope rest fully in you. Please, Lord, we pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys. If you have any questions or want prayer, feel free to come to the after-service service, service on, on, uh, on Zoom. God bless.